0: You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now on CNN.
1: and welcome to the CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. It's being seen around the world on CNN, CNN International, CNN en Español, CNN.com, HLN, and Facebook.com. I'm Anderson Cooper.
2: And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. These next two hours are all about getting you the facts and answering your questions. So you can send them to us now. Go to CNN's Facebook page and leave a comment on the top. Post your question. You can also go to CNN's Instagram page and leave a question in our story.
1: We're also going to be uh, taking people's questions live from across the country and around the world. What we won't do uh, is, uh, is take questions from people here in the studio. As you can see, at this time last week, we gathered here in this room. These seats were filled. Tonight, they sit empty because health officials are now warning against large gatherings. It's an example now, one of many, of how rapidly we are all adapting and will have to adapt, and how the coronavirus is changing our lives at work, at home, at school how we travel, how we're entertained. Nearly every element of our daily life has been altered or may soon be.
2: But one thing this outbreak won't stop is our continued reporting on it. So while the seats here may be empty, our town hall is going to go on. We are going to spend the next two hours talking to experts and answering questions that you've been submitting to us, so many of them as well through Facebook and Instagram, uh, who we're going to partner with tonight on this. We're also going to check in with our reporters from around the globe about what they're seeing right now and how it's different from country to country, and how that might inform what comes next here.
1: And if you watched last week, it's a big difference just from last week uh, to tonight. We started last week's town hall with a bit of a reality check on what we know and what we don't know about the virus as of right now. So we want to do the same thing again with uh, Dr. Gupta right now. What's the, what is the biggest thing that we do not know right now and the one that most important thing that we do know?
2: I think, unfortunately, the thing that we don't know still, especially when it comes to the United States... Is just the extent of how widespread this coronavirus because is. Because
1: we don't have the test, we don't know how big this really is. We
2: we really don't. And you know, we've been saying this for for weeks now. It remains a consistent concern. I know one that we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah.
1: Um, and just in terms of what we do know,
2: you know, I think what's interesting is people are hearing about all these social distancing mechanisms and you know how much their lives are going to change. Just like you mentioned, what we do know from pandemics past is that these can work. I mean, some pretty uh, awful pandemics in the past have been really mitigated and even stopped because of these social distancing. things. So we're gonna explain why that is tonight.
1: Yeah, let's take a look at uh, where we are right now.
3: A grim announcement just moments ago from the World Health Organization.
4: The WHO has now declared that this outbreak is a pandemic. Here is what we're seeing in the US right now. A dramatic rise in the number of cases in just a week and a half.
1: There are now more than 1,500 confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus in the U.S. across at least 46 states. One week ago, at our last town hall, there were just 205 cases in 17 states. And those are just the cases we know about. The virus shows no sign of slowing down, and despite assurances from the administration, current testing is inadequate. The
3: system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing.
1: New York State now has the largest number of cases in the country. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has set up a one-mile containment zone in New Rochelle, where schools and houses of worship will be closed for at least two weeks. The National Guard have been sent in to help clean public spaces within the zone. It is a dramatic action, but it is the largest cluster in the country. And this is literally a matter of uh, life and death. All across the country, large gatherings are being limited, events canceled, schools closed. In just one week, the virus has spread to at least 20 more countries across the globe. There are more than 25,000 new cases, more than 1,000 more deaths. Bottom line, it's going to get worse. Fuzzy. According to the uh, the New York State Department of Health, there are now 148 cases in Westchester County, one of the biggest case clusters in the United States, with the community of New Rochelle at the center of the outbreak. Today became the first, uh, the country's first coronavirus containment zone, seen as Erica Hill is there for us right now. Uh, Erica, the National Guard has been called in. What are they doing? What's the role they're going to be playing there?
5: So they are here, Anderson, largely for logistical and operational purposes. And I spoke with the mayor uh, earlier tonight, and he said that's what they really want to stress. They're not here to keep anybody out of that containment zone. That area is not on lockdown. It is not a quarantine zone. People are free to move in and out. But as you said, houses of worship and schools are closed and large gatherings have been discouraged. So part of what they will be doing is, in terms of those logistics, is actually helping to get food to people. The mayor told me that there are thousands of children within this school district who are food insecure. And they are very much concerned about them over these next couple of weeks as the schools are closed here through March 25th. So the National Guard will not only help set up distribution centers, but if need be, Anderson will be delivering food to those children and their families. So
1: just to be, uh, you, uh, just to be clear, they're not uh, imposing any kind of a lockdown or policing.
5: No, you're right. They're not. You can drive in and out. I was driving around earlier today just to see what was open. No one stopped me. There wasn't a large National Guard or police presence. Again, they're not here for a lockdown And the area, is not under a full quarantine. You
2: know, one thing, I, I was over there, uh, this is Sanjay, Erica, I was over there earlier today. It's worth pointing out that there was one case there last week on March 6th and now over 148 cases. But I keep hearing, as we've talked about, we don't really know how many cases there are. Is there more testing there where you are now?
5: There is more testing that is going to start happening here. So there's a satellite testing facility that's been set up in New Rochelle, and that's going to open tomorrow. That is, though, by appointment only. Appointments, uh, preference in those appointments, is being given to people who've been under quarantine. But the mayor told me today they've been doing informational robocalls every day throughout the community. And today that robocall really stressed to folks. They cannot just show up at that drive-through testing site. They will not be able to get a test. They have to first go through their doctor. But he said, what this will facilitate is that the testing can be done sooner. Earlier, they had to take the swab here and then send it all the way up north to Albany. This way they can do it and get the results in a much quicker fashion.
1: All right. Erica Hill, thanks very much. We have some virus-related breaking news right now. It comes from Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's wife, Sophie Trudeau, has tested positive for the novel coronavirus. That's according to a statement from the prime minister's office. She's said to be feeling well and will remain in isolation. The Prime Minister Trudeau has no symptoms but will be in isolation for 14 days, according to the statement. He's not being tested at this time. Now, Europe. This week, the director of the CD said the epicenter, the new China, is Europe. That's a quote. The worst-known outbreak right now is in Italy. Two weeks ago, Italy had 400 confirmed cases. Last week, 3,000 and about 100 people died. This week, according to the Italian government, more than 15,000 people now have tested positive positive. And more than a thousand are dead. CNN's Bed Wiedemann is in Bologna for us tonight. Uh, explain this, this nationwide lockdown. What is it like for people? Can they leave their apartment? If so, when? What's it like? What's life like in a lockdown?
6: It's fairly eerie here in Bologna, where we arrived just a few days ago and the streets were full of people, full of traffic. Now you go out to the, the main square, the piazza, which is just up the street from where we are, it's empty. There's uh, some police there, uh, but by and large, it just has completely transformed ordinary life in this city. Now, you can go out. You can go out for a jog or a walk, walk your dog. Take your children for a walk, but you have to keep a distance from other people. Uh, You cannot, kids cannot go out and play a game of soccer, for instance. No public assembly is allowed. Shops, some shops are open. You can go buy, go to the supermarket. You can go to a fresh produce uh, store. You can go to the pharmacy. Even computer repair shops are open. But everything else, Anderson, is closed. Also closed in Rome today, it was announced that churches would be closed, even for individuals going in for private prayer. This is the first time that has happened ever, ever not during world war ii not during the black plague not even the sack of rome in 455 a.d anderson wow
2: you know uh, ben I, I had a question yeah i was watching reports about the medical system and just the pressure on, on the medical system so important because we're worried about that happening obviously here in the united states how are things now what, how, how do you describe that pressure are they able to take care of patients
6: the pressure is intense. you know you talk to doctors, they talk about a wave of patients, a tsunami of patients, a bomb hitting the National Health Service. Now keep in mind as you as you know Sanjay, the outbreak is focused in northern Italy. That's the richest part of the country. It has the best public health system in in Europe by far and they are struggling. they have added, hundreds of new intensive care units, but nonetheless, uh, they are being overwhelmed. You know, the doctors are working long shifts when they put on these all encompassing uh, hazmat suits. uh, They are sweating pounds of sweat Mm -hmm. through their shift. And uh, it, it is we heard, for instance, the prime minister, Giuseppe Conte, a few days ago, warning that the numbers are going to continue to rise and put continuing pressure on the public health system. Now, the Italian media is reporting that he warned in a closed door cabinet session that the number of cases in Italy could hit 100,000. At the moment, today, the latest figures uh, were 15,000. And the worry is that this health system, which is good. I've been in it myself. I've been treated by it. It is excellent. But the numbers are something nobody was prepared for. Uh, we <laughs> understand that, the chi- that China is going to donate 20,000 uh, medical suits, uh, 10,000 ventilators. So it's desperately in need of help. And it is struggling at the moment Uh, to deal with the number of patients.
1: I know a lot of doctors here are looking at what's happening there uh, with great concern. Ben Wiedemann, I appreciate all your reporting for you and your team. Stay safe. In China, some possible good news. Health officials there are claiming they are seeing a decline in the number of new cases. Two weeks ago, for example, 78,000 cases, more than 2,700 deaths. A week ago, 80,000 cases, 3,000 deaths. Today, nearly 81,000 cases, with death toll climbing to nearly 3,200. CNN's David Culver joins us now in in Shanghai. Uh, David, what are officials in China attributing to what they say is this leveling off of new cases?
7: Anderson, it's interesting listening to Ben reporting there in Italy and the fact that where this started, they are now sending help out to the world. So the epicenter of all of this here in China is now under control to such an extent that they feel like they can help other countries like Italy. It is a significant turnaround, especially when you look at the daily number of reported cases. I mean, we're talking about single digits now. Just go back a few weeks. We were talking about in the hundreds, even in the thousands. What we need to stress, though, is it did not start out this way. Early on, go back seven weeks, when we were in Wuhan, they had allegations of cover-up, allegations of underreporting. reporting They had really only 200 tests a day for a city population of 11 million. What changed was when the central government stepped in. They pushed out the local government. They said, we're taking control. It became a military-like operation. They began ramping up production of face masks. They began opening these field hospitals. Our daily lives changed drastically. I I look on social media and I see folks in the States and in Europe, and it's kind of jarring for me, to be quite honest, to see people out in fitness centers, to see them still going out in social settings, because here it was just about overnight where churches were closed, fitness centers were closed, restaurants were closed. Everything came to a halt and it has not been perfect, but the numbers are showing that it seems to have been at least effective for now.
2: I got to say, it's just remarkable that China now donating some equipment yeah. to places like Italy. But, you know, obviously people are going to hear this, David, and uh, give, give some hope maybe uh, here in the United States that we're going to come through this and hopefully get back to a normal way of life. Wh- what do you think? Having been over there for so long, should we be hopeful based on what you're seeing in China?
7: And Sanjay, I I feel the anxiety from my family and friends. I see it uh, coming in my my Instagram and and Facebook messages. People are flooding me. People just wanting to cling on to something positive. And I I get that. We are seeing signs of coming back to life here. Just today, the parks are reopening in Shanghai. Restaurants have given the all clear to have as many people as they need to uh, party-wise to come in and, and book a table. Tourist attractions are starting to reopen. Shanghai Disney opening shops, opening some of their restaurants. Not yet the park, but little Mm -hmm. by little, it's coming back online. Sanjay, though, you used a word in your Facebook Live a couple of hours ago that that stood out to me. It's humility. And and while people are getting back to this new normal, they're doing so with this sense of humility, humility of knowing what they do not know. And that is still a lot. Mm -hmm. They're very cautious as to those social settings. So even though things seem to be under control, they're very wary of, of who they're in touch with, how close they're getting to people. Sanitizing is, is still a, a, an hourly thing, if not every half hour people are doing it. And, and so they're incredibly mindful of this new way of life. And you know, I, I go back to how we were acting seven weeks ago, and, and Sanjay, I'm surprised you haven't blocked my emails yet because you, you've guided me through a lot of this. And, and your advice is something that we have stuck to quite religiously here. We don't step out of our hotel without having a strategic plan of action. Every day is planned to the minute as far as where we're going to go, where we're going to eat, who we're going to be in touch with, Mm -hmm. and if we can avoid that exposure, we do it. It's about taking these risk assessments. Uh, uh,
1: That's incredible. Yeah, David Culver, appreciate all your reporting for you and your team. It's been extraordinary. Joining us now, uh, very pleased to have Dr. Anthony Fauci, a member of the President's Coronavirus Task Force, director of the National Institute of of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. He testified before Congress today, uh, Dr. Fauci, first of all, uh, we very much appreciate you being here, given how busy you are fighting this pandemic. You are the front line, and um, we just appreciate it. We have a lot of questions from people all around the world for you. Uh, before we get to that, I, I do want to get some facts on the table, and, and-, and I don't want to put you in a difficult spot given you're working with the Coronavirus Task Force and the administration, but there has been misinformation out there, and I just want to try to get separate facts uh, from what is true and what's not true. The president has said over the last two weeks a number of things. And again, I don't want to put you on the spot, but he has said that the virus is very well under control in this country. Is that true or false?
3: Well, I don't want to say true, false. I can just tell you what's going on. We're having an acceleration of cases, as you just delineated with Sanjay. It's obvious what's going on. When you look at outbreaks of this sort, you have this for a while and then it does that. You just described very unfortunate situation in Italy which went up like this what we hope to do with both containment and mitigation is to get this peak to actually Mm -hmm. flatten out I don't think we're at all gonna get away with not a lot more cases we will have a lot more cases the question is are we gonna blunt that peak and the things we're doing by preventing infections from coming outside in with the travel restrictions, which are totally appropriate and I think are very helpful, as well as doing containment and mitigation from within. The things that you've described, that people are doing according to the recommendations and guidelines of the CDC. So that's the hope, but it's gonna go up. As I said today at the hearing, it's definitely gonna get worse before it gets better. In a public,
1: uh, in a pandemic, facts can save lives. Misinformation can cost lives. Who should people, watching tonight, who should people listen to uh, in the government for factual information they can use? I mean, the coronavirus task force didn't have a briefing today. You were testifying today. Uh, You have given out factual information. Is it the coronavirus task force? Is it the president? Who should we listen to?
3: Well, I think you you look at the scientific data and the scientific data are almost always presented by people in public health, scientists, physicians, and others. So, I mean, I've been trying as best as I can to be out there as often as I can. You can hear from my voice that that's been a lot. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get information, policy, and guidelines out that are based on fundamental facts, evidence, and data.
2: And, and Dr. Fauci, I wanna echo what Anderson said as well. Thank you very much for, <clears throat> for your service. People may not know this, Dr. Fauci's 79 years old, and uh, I mean, you have the energy I think many of us emulate. Let me ask one more question, though, about this testing. I know you've talked a lot about it, but I think, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci, there was a test. It was being distributed around the world. Uh, WHO uh, was using this test. I believe it was created in Germany and Berlin, and it was being used. And yet we did not use it in this country, even as a stopgap measure, even as we prepared to make our own test. And as a result, we got behind. That's a problem. And I'm, I'm just wondering, was that a mistake? Should we have used that test? Why didn't we?
3: Well, you know, Sanjay, I'm not sure that it was a mistake, but certainly, you know, you know, if you look back in Monday Morning Quarterback, it would have been nice to have had a backup. But what the CDC has done over many, many years when we have things like this is to develop their own test, which is always really a good test, and to, and to roll it out in a way that we call a public health directed, where they give it to departments of public health. You have a physician-patient relationship. They come in, they order the test, They get the test. It was not designed for the kind of mass uh, distribution that we need now that we've seen in other countries. That's behind us. Looking forward, we're going very much in that direction, Sanjay, very much so. And I think really within a relatively short period of time, you know, a week or maybe even less, we're going to start to see the ratcheting up of the availability of tests. So, you know, rather than go back and play Monday morning quarterback, let's just direct where we're going. Um, Dr.
1: Fauci, just one more question before you get a break, and then we'll get uh, questions from people around the world. I- I've been talking to a, a number of doctors uh, just off the record, con- phone conversations, not on air, I- who are working front lines in hospitals. And everything they are saying to me is, you need to be shouting this from the mountaintops. You need to be raising as many red flags as possible, because what we are seeing is truly Reason. What we see in Italy, where doctors are putting out guidelines about catastrophe medicine, who should you know, get actual treatment if you only have so many ventilators, who gets to get the ventilator and who gets put in the hallway and not treated. And those are d- incredibly difficult decisions. Um, what is the situation in hospitals? How concerned are you about doctors getting sick? I know doctors who have already feel like they're coming down with this thing. Uh, I talked to to one today, Uh, both he and his wife feel that what is how concerned are you about the front line and it holding?
3: Well, you know, very good question. Of course, I have concerns about things. And I think just hearkening back to what I said a moment ago, if we get into that really, really sharp peak where Italy was and is right now. So unfortunate because so many of my friends and colleagues are right there in those cities doing that, then then we might have the same problem. What we were trying very hard to do by the containment and mitigation, by the travel bans, by the travel restrictions, is to never let it get that high. If we can keep it down to a little hump, there'll be pain, there'll be suffering, there'll be some death, but the system might not get overwhelmed. If we fail in blunting it, and it goes way, way up, then we're gonna have problems that are very serious. I hope we never get there. And the reason we're putting a full court press on containment mitigation restrictions is we're trying to avoid that peak that occurs in other countries.
1: We're gonna pick this up after a quick break. Our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall continues in a moment.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: Back with the CNN Facebook Global Town Hall, legendary Dr. Anthony Fauci, a member of the White House Task Force, is with us along with CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And just in the last few minutes, more breaking news. The United States Military Academy West Point just announced it is delaying the return of cadets from spring break. That's the latest in a long string of closings lately and almost certainly not the last. Now let's get some questions that we've gotten from, uh, from people uh, around the world. Uh, Dr. Fauci, this is Paul Robinson. He's in Hanover, New Hampshire. Paul, go ahead with your question.
6: So my question is, if you think you're
2: infected, you're symptomatic, fever, cough, headache, and so
8: you self-quarantine, how soon before you can return to social situations? Is it safe to say that when you're no longer
2: symptomatic, then you're no longer potentially shedding the virus? Dr. Fauci?
3: No, that's not correct at all. That's a very good question. Uh, you can get infected, become symptomatic, resolve the symptoms, feel well, and still shed virus. You can go back to your normal life when you have two consecutive tests for the coronavirus that are negative, separated by 24 hours. That's an excellent question. Just because you feel better or feel well does not mean that you're not shedding virus. And Dr. Fauci, how how uh, certain...
1: Are scientists about this 15 day quarantine period that I mean, I've seen online some some reports of cases in China where people may have had it for more than 15 days or been asymptomatic, but uh, carried the virus and may be infecting people past 15 days.
3: You know, it's pretty certain about that, Anderson. And if you look now, as we get more and more data, the median incubation period is five to five point two days. But the brackets in the range are pretty tight between two and 14 days. Whenever you have biology, there's always going to be the out of the way exception. But for the most part, I think the operating definition of two to 14 with the median about five is accurate.
1: Uh, Dr. Fauci, we have a text question. This is from uh, Stephanie Beecher uh, from Columbus, uh, Georgia. She uh, came to us online uh, from her. She says, what supplies should I get in case my community locks down from coronavirus outbreak?"
3: Well, you know, people in their homes, um, even beyond uh, coronavirus, should always, particularly people who require medication, should have some degree of stocking up of things in case there's any kind of a, a disaster, a natural disaster. But specifically for coronavirus, if you're going to be, you know, confined to a place where you can't uh, uh, have access to things, I think the standard things, you know, bottled water, making sure that if you're on medications, which I have to emphasize is one of the most important things, make sure you have your medications that'll take you through a period longer than what you usually do to get refills and things like that. But canned foods, uh, water, particularly bottled water, that you have that available to you.
2: You know, one of the things, Dr. Fauci, that kept coming up when we asked people to to get extra medications, for example, people kept saying, look, my insurance doesn't cover me getting extra medications, I can only get a certain number of days worth. Is that something that's being addressed? Because that's a really, it seems like a really practical concern for people who are trying to stock up.
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Sanjay. As a matter of fact, the other day, I mistakenly asked for a refill because I got the date wrong and they said, I can't give it to you. Uh, I wasn't trying to stock up. I was just, I just made a mistake. And they said the insurance wouldn't pay for it. I think that's something we really should look at. I mean, we're looking at uh, relieving a lot of regulations and other things to make it easier for people to cope with this. You know, uh, I don't want to be saying it absolutely should be done, but really somebody should look at that.
1: Yeah. Cause now I, I had the same situation. I ended up just paying cash for a two month supply. Um, but you know, I'm lucky that I was able to do that. Not, you know, it'd be great if the insurance companies gave a break on that. We've got another question. Um, This one is from, uh, let's see, Stephanie, Stephanie, oh, Stephanie Robinson in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, She's a professor at Harvard Law School. Stephanie, what's your question?
9: So I'm
0: wondering if you can be a bit more specific about what constitutes a pre-existing health condition that would have someone be at greater risk uh, regarding the severity, of course, and the possible fatality of COVID-19. So, for example, asthma. Uh, We know that we have 25 million people or more who are impacted by this disease. Is this the type of disease that we're talking about would have uh, cause more complications?
3: Yeah, I mean, asthma, obviously, there are different degrees of asthma. I mean, if someone, who whenever they get an upper respiratory infection really dramatically exacerbates their asthma i think you would say that that person would be at a higher risk the classical ones are things like chronic congestive heart uh, uh, failure uh, chronic pulmonary disease diabetes and anybody who really is on any immunosuppressive uh, regimen be that for cancer chemotherapy autoimmune diseases and also the elderly. Now, among the group, the elderly plus that is even more at risk. And if you look at the serious complications and ultimately the case fatality rate is very heavily weighted to those individuals.
1: Dr. Fauci, you've worked a lot on HIV over the years. If somebody's HIV positive but undetectable and otherwise healthy, is that a, a, a factor that they should take into account, that, that makes them a greater risk?
3: You know, you know, well, I mean, obviously we, we, we have, we've been, I've been taking care of thousands of patients with, with HIV over the years. Today, if somebody has a normal, or close to normal CD4 count, has got an undetectable viral load and antiretroviral therapies, they could possibly be at a slightly greater risk, but I don't think it is anywhere near the risk of somebody who really has a compromised uh, pulmonary function, compromised kidney function, diabetes, and things like that.
1: Uh, There's another question from Ingrid from Maryland. Uh, It was submitted online. She wants to know if airplanes have such superior air filtration systems as reported, then why the advisory for those age 60 plus not to travel by plane? And how come public transport is still okay?
3: That's a good question. I think we need to look at every aspect of it. You know, and as we say, the CDC's got some guidelines out about, you know, a low, intermediate, high kinds of uh, mitigation that you might do. I mean, if it isn't public, uh, transportation involved, again, we need to seriously look at it. Everything needs to be on the table, Anderson, right now. This is a serious situation.
2: Can, can I just yeah. ask again? I mean, I, and again, I pointed out you're, you're 79 years old. I hope that was okay that I told people your age. Are are you, are you traveling on planes? Are are you, I mean, you're a busy guy. Are you out there?
3: Uh, you, You know, I'm not out there, uh, Anderson. I haven't even been confronted with that possibility. I've been completely locked in Mm. and responding right here. I've canceled virtually everything that I was gonna be doing purely because I'm literally locked into this 19 hours a day, uh, anywhere from the department down to the White House, ton of the kinds of response being in the media. So I'm not going anywhere for a number of reasons. Uh, and also many of the things I would have done have been canceled anyway.
2: Would you, would you though get on a plane?
3: Would I get on a plane right now? Yeah. You know, it depends on what, what the what the issue was. I mean, if I had to do something that was absolutely important, as you know, uh, Sandra, you know me, I'm a pretty healthy guy <laughs> for 79. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I might take a second thought. I wouldn't do anything that's unnecessary. I mm. certainly wouldn't get on a plane for a pleasure trip. It would have to be something that was really urgent. My job is the public health. If it had to do with the public health and I needed to do something for the public health, I might do that because I'm quite healthy. However, if it was just for fun, no way I would do it.
1: Uh, uh, we got a lot of questions that uh, the, we the, the next uh, the questioner uh, has. Emily Mitchell, Salt Lake City. Uh, Emily, what's your question?
0: Hi, Anderson. Thanks for having me. My question is regarding the mail. I'm a stay-at-home mom and I do a lot of online shopping. So I'm curious how long coronavirus lives on surfaces and how we should be handling the mail.
1: We got a ton of these, Dr. Fauci. Mail, also money, currency.
3: Yeah. You know, th- there was a paper that was either submitted or already published from one of our people who looked at the uh, the detection of viable virus on a variety of substances, stainless steel, probably popeline, cardboard cloth, and things like that. You know, for the most part, the titration of it and the titer of it on surfaces is probably measured in a couple of hours. I would think something that goes through the mail, by the time it gets to you, that's it. And even if it is on there, would it be high enough of a concentration to actually be transmitted? So although it's important, I don't wanna downplay the recommendations of wiping down the kinds of things that you could easily wipe down, you know, doorknobs, screens and things like that. I think if you start thinking about money and and mail and things like that, you could could almost sort of immobilize yourself, which I don't think is a good idea.
1: Dr. Fauci, uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, I know uh, your work is extraordinary and we really appreciate you dedicating uh, all, all your efforts and giving us some time tonight. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Good to be with
1: you guys. Uh, For more information, uh, we have more information on our CNN Facebook uh, Facebook, uh, page. Also, our uh, Facebook uh, Global Town Hall continues in just a moment. Up next, more on the coronavirus testing. Talk with a doctor who's part of a team creating a new test that could give results within hours. We'll be right back.
0: After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
1: And welcome back to our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. Uh, joining us here is Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency room physician and former health commissioner for Baltimore, Maryland. She's also going to answer viewer questions in a moment. But first, as we've been discussing, one of the overriding issues is testing for the coronavirus. And even when tests are available, it can take days for the results. Uh, Dr. Dr. Yana Broadhurst at the University of Nebraska Medical Center has taken the lead on developing a test that delivers much faster results. And she joins us now. Welcome, Dr. Broadhurst.
2: Welcome, uh, Dr. Brahar. You know, this is obviously a very important issue. You've been able to, with your colleagues, develop a test that can give results back within hours. Uh, typically, it's taking days. Just curious, how, how did you do it? Why was why was there a need to do it by this university?
10: Yeah, thank you. It's a, a pleasure to join you in this discussion. So really, um, you know, here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, we, we take on... Uh, uh, an important role in, in leading our efforts nationally for biocontainment care. So when we heard that this outbreak was emerging uh, in the early weeks of, of, of the outbreak, we knew that it was the, uh, the time was, was then to begin uh, developing our capability to support um, laboratory testing for individuals who might come under our care. So uh, this process began very early for us uh, here, as uh, as we prepared to receive Americans who were who are being brought back home, first from China and and then from the cruise ship off the coast of Japan. Right. So our our ability to to do this testing really relied on. Uh, uh, The global sharing of knowledge of the virus as it became available uh, from the very uh, early days of the outbreak and and we as part of the the global scientific community were able to utilize that knowledge to develop our in-house testing capability and and be prepared for the time when we would uh, receive Americans from abroad and now to to be able to diagnose our own patients and community members uh, here at our own institution. How
1: quickly can you now get results? I mean, if somebody comes to you and needs a test, how quickly can you get them results?
10: It takes uh, about four to six hours for us to give a result. If somebody comes into our emergency department and we collect a sample, it gets to our lab, uh, and it's about four to six hours from then.
1: And it I mean, because I know it takes days, even now, for, for, for most people getting, getting these tests. Is, was it a really difficult thing to figure out how to uh, speed up this process? I mean, without getting too much in the weeds of, was it really tough?
10: Yeah, sure. So really the, the biggest difference in that uh, turnaround time to getting the result is having the ability to do that testing here in our own clinical laboratory. So it's certainly um, you know a, a big effort to bring up a test and validate it and, and have that assurance that it's an accurate test, um, uh, but we were able to stand up that ability here in our own laboratory. So the big difference in that turnaround time is really that that sample is, is just going next door to our own lab. Right.
2: I mean, it sounds like what you're saying then, uh, doctor, is that the other tests have to be, they have to be mailed, I guess, uh, to whatever lab, then ultimately mailed back. Or uh, thats Is that the big difference then in, in terms of why your test is some, so much quicker? And is
1: this something that other, I mean, you that other doctors can do as well? Because that would obviously help a lot of people
10: nationwide. Absolutely. So there's, there's a, a tremendous effort happening right now in clinical laboratories across the country um, uh, at, at other particularly large academic medical centers to bring this type of uh, in-house testing capability for COVID-19 uh, to their patients and communities. It is uh, it is a, a difficult process and, and requires uh, several steps to get through regulatory approval to perform that testing, but that effort is is going on in force across the country.
1: Yeah. Dr. Broadhurst, thank you so much for, for the, your teams effort really appreciate you uh, coming on tonight thanks so wish you the best keep doing what you're doing dr. Wynn you uh, uh, I mean the idea of any kind of solution to make something faster would be a great thing I mean it is I think still very uh, concerning for a lot of doctors and patients that just the lack of testing nationwide
11: sure definitely and the need for point-of care testing having that testing result back immediately is so important because you can imagine if you're waiting two to three days for a right. test what are you supposed to do? I mean, right. what is and you might have interactions with
1: other people in that in that interim phase.
11: That's exactly right. And I think patients also get very worried. And it's just, it makes a lot of sense and is critical for clinical decision-making to have the test at the time that you need and for everyone that you need it for.
1: We've got questions from, uh, from a lot of folks uh, for you. This is a question from Scott Lahane in Ontario, Canada. Scott?
8: Uh, thank you for having me. My question is, Is it reasonable to expect COVID-19 to die down during the summer months, or is that just wishful thinking?
1: Mm. Something the president has sort of said that this may just disappear.
11: I wish that were the case, but at this point, we just don't know. I mean, it's possible, Mm. but I don't know that we know for certain either way. Possible
1: because other viruses in the past have done this?
2: Yeah, including other coronaviruses, right? I mean, Even if you look at the SARS coronavirus, it did have sort of its peak, correct me if I'm wrong, late March, early April, as Mm. the weather started to get warmer.
11: That's right. But we don't know. And don't I don't know. think we can count on this either. That's why all the measures that we're taking in terms of prevention are so important, right. because there's no vaccine, there's no treatment. And so what we have is the ability to try to prevent and reduce the rate of transmission.
1: If it did go away in warmer weather, which would be extraordinary, and let's hope for that, uh, would it then it wouldn't be... Disappearing from the Earth, it would would it still be out there and then come roaring back in the in colder weather?
11: That's exactly right, and it could also be more prevalent in other parts of the world that have different seasonal patterns to ours. And we know with influenza, for example, it decreased but then came back when yeah. there was colder weather again. So we cannot count on warm weather to try to get rid of COVID nineteen. Right.
2: I think there's another thing worth pointing out is that we may develop some some of what's called herd immunity. As we're exposed to this, mm. we may develop some immunity, which even if it comes back, we may have some protection mm. the next time it does come back, even even before a vaccine.
1: Um, this is a question from uh, from Lisa Bristow in Wilmington, Del- Delaware. Lisa, what's your question? Go ahead. Hi,
10: everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a 33-year-old female with an underlying health condition for which the medication I use is immunosuppressant. Mm. I'm also currently 27 weeks pregnant. Uh, Given that I fall into the highest risk category, what dangers, if any, does coronavirus pose to my unborn child?
11: It's a really good question. And it's something that I think about a lot myself (laughs) because I'm 37 weeks pregnant now. Mm. And the data about pregnancy and COVID-19 is just not there. Mm. We have some limited cases in China that looked at pregnant women. And so far, it does look like Unlike with influenza, where pregnant women was um, are one of the highest risk categories, Mm -hmm. COVID nineteen doesn't impact pregnant women quite the same way. Mm -hmm. But that said, pregnancy is a medically vulnerable state, and for the person who just asked the question, she also has an immune condition as well, and that makes her really vulnerable. And I think just taking extra precautions is a is a good idea. There's
1: also breastfeeding. uh, I mean, if you give birth and you're breastfeeding and you are infected, does that put the the infinite risk
11: well, the one study that has looked at the uh, at breastfeeding so far found that there isn't virus in the breast milk. And in fact, there may be antibodies there, mm-hmm. but it's such a limited study and we need a lot more information. And so pregnant women should certainly take additional precautions, just like older individuals and others who are more vulnerable to.
2: Yeah. And people forget, you know, being pregnant, I mean, part of the reason your immune system is sort of diminished is because you're now, you don't want to have your, your own immune system attack the unborn child. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason uh, you're a little bit more susceptible, Uh, at least I think whoever just asked the question, she's also on immunosuppressants. So she definitely has to be more careful.
1: Mm. Um, we got another uh, submission, a question. This is online. This is from uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, in uh, in Kentucky. He writes, does normal laundry washing remove the COVID-19 virus from your clothes, towels, linens, etc.? It's a great question.
11: Yes, it does. Although I would say that be careful of what's lining your laundry hamper, because hmm. you may be throwing things into a basket but never washing the basket. And so oh. use a disposable liner or something that could be laundered too, because otherwise you could get the virus out of what you're washing, but it could be... You put it back being- in the
1: same basket, it could, it could actually transfer that way. That's right. Um, this is uh, uh, Justin, uh, uh, Justin uh, Minion is in Irvine, California, with a question. Justin.
4: Hi, Anderson. Hi, Sanjay. Thanks for having me. Tonight, I had a question regarding face masks. I've heard two different sides of the story. One, that these masks are ineffective, and the other, the doctors and nurses across the country are in desperate need of these very same face masks. Specifically mm-hmm. in regards to the N95 respirators, Are these masks effective in preventing the virus? And for Americans across the country who now have these masks, what can they do and where do we go from here?
10: Great
1: question.
11: Well, we don't recommend for everyday people, non-healthcare workers, to get masks because we do have a limited supply of these masks and we need for healthcare workers who are treating patients to have them. And surgical masks, what people normally wear, they protect other people from you if you're sick because mm. your coughing is sneezing into the mask, but they don't protect you necessarily from, from having the infection. And so my strong advice to people is do not hoard surgical masks. Do not hoard N95 masks yeah. because- That's what doctors need.
1: I've been told that if you have a mask, I mean, uh, the few times I've worn a mask, not in in this case, I wouldn't wear a mask. But but uh, for stories, uh, you end up adjusting it all the time. You end up touching your face. You adjust your glasses because your glasses sometimes fog up. It doesn't fit right.
2: Yeah. And look, if the mask becomes contaminated and you're touching it and then touching your face or even in the process of taking off the mask, it sounds counterintuitive. But there's been studies on this that your risk of actually becoming infected counterintuitively goes up when you're, when you're wearing one of these masks. He makes a good point, I think. Uh, There's, there's different masks. There's the surgical mask and there's the N95 mask. Surgical mask we're seeing on some of these images here. You can sort of tell by looking at that mask, it's not going to stop viral particles from going around the outside or underneath the mask. The N95 mask is a fitted mask. It has to actually be fit-tested when you, when you put it on. It's a tough... I don't know if you've ever worn one, but it's, it's a tough no. mask to wear. Like, you'd have a hard time walking a block. It's not the kind of mask that you can just wear in your daily life. Mm-hmm. We wear it in the hospital if we're working with patients that are known to have these infections. Mm-hmm. These are different masks. Um, the surgical mask that people are wearing, the healthy people, it's not... It's not really, I think, providing the benefit that they they hope for
1: Hmm. Um, this. uh, I'm also sick of seeing celebrities with their masks on on private planes, Instagramming photos of themselves. (laughs) Like, you know what? Either if you have the virus, fine. You don't need to Instagram and like show off your mask to people. It's uh, kind of obnoxious. We're all in this together. Let's get real. Uh, Max James is from Wisconsin. Uh, He uh, sent in a video question. I should mention that Max is 16 years old. His mom gave him permission to be on TV. So (laughs) take a look and on Facebook. Since all the cleaning supplies and hand sanitizer is sold out everywhere, can you make
12: your own and can you make your own mask? It's a cool question. There
11: it is. It's sold out. It's <laughs> hard sure. to get. I know. And I, I've heard so many stories of people looking for any product that they can use to clean their house and hand sanitizers right. before going all over the place and not getting them do not make your own hand sanitizer because there's something that's even more effective, which is soap and water. And, uh, I mean, it's much more effective in cleaning your hands, but it's also more effective in cleaning surfaces, too. Mm -hmm. So if you can't find Soap and water is more effective than cleaning things. Yeah, absolutely. And so use, um, use soap and water. Use liquid soap and water. If you are looking for other things, you can also use dilute bleach. You can use alcohol, isopropyl alcohol that's in your house if you don't have specific cleaning supplies. But do not make your own Hand sanitizer, and don't go out there and um, and and try to become your own chemist. Don't use vodka and other other recipes because those are not effective and actually could be dangerous.
1: Uh, we have another. On- or do, do you have-
2: I was just saying. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting to me that I mean, people they generally know how to wash their hands. It's mm-hmm. something we've been taught since we were kids. But I think most people actually don't do it right. And I mean, it's it's been a great opportunity to educate people about that. The really the interlacing of your hands, making sure that you get the back of your hands. People often forget to wash their thumbs. They forget to get underneath their nails. And I, you know, I've seen more people actually trying to do this diligently than mm-hmm. I think I ever have before. And you're supposed to do it thing. for, what, 20 seconds? 20 seconds, yeah. I
1: just remember you saying that years ago, and it always stuck in my See? mind. See, yeah. I, I gave you a head start. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very simple. I need basic instructions. <laughs> uh, we have another uh, submission uh, online. This one is from uh, Janice in Willow Springs, Illinois. She writes, if we have no medic- uh, medicine cure for COVID-19, mm-hmm. what are hospitals doing for patients who are admitted for
11: it? It's a great question, and the answer is that it's symptomatic treatment. It's supporting patients through this time when there isn't anything else, right? It's not that there's a cure. There's no antiviral medication yet. Yet, those are undergoing Mm -hmm. testing. But at the moment, the best thing that we can do is to support patients. So if they have pneumonia, if they are not able to breathe on their own, in hospitals they can get oxygen they can get ventilation they can get supportive treatment to get them through that period when the virus is attacking not
1: everybody who is hospitalized would end up on a ventilator correct, correct? correct. but uh, but it's a significant number of, i mean People will, and that's a critical, I mean, you can only get that in a It's critical that they are there for that.
11: That's right. So it appears that about 80% of people who get the novel coronavirus will have mild symptoms and do not require hospital care. 15% will require some type of hospital or more acute care. 5% may require intensive care, ventilation, etc. Mm-hmm. 5% of the
1: 15%. Five, um, total. Oh, five,
11: total. Five percent. 5% total. Okay. Exactly
1: so 20% of people will require hospital care. Fifteen, uh, 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 The vast majority of that 20% mm. uh, won't require ventilation, but, but a significant Correct. percentage will.
11: But they'll need monitoring right. because patients may not know, right? So initially they may actually be quite well, but at some point they may not do as well. Mm. And then to be in a hospital setting or to have access to that, then they can mm. receive that higher level of care if they should need it.
2: And, and, you know, this gets back to what I think we were talking about earlier. We, we have some modeling to sort of predict mm-hmm. just how many patients are likely to require medical care at all. How many will need to be in an intensive care unit and how many will need ventilators? And this really gets back at this, this issue that I think is at the core of this that we started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have enough of these resources right now for a moderate pandemic. They say you need 200,000 ICU beds. We have about 100,000 ICU beds. Mm. Now, if, hopefully not everyone needs it at the same time, which is why this flattening of the curve becomes so important. Mm-hmm. You can stagger when people actually need the medical care and, and, and hopefully that will help not put such a toll on the medical system.
1: Yeah. Um, we, uh, we have more straight ahead reports from across uh, the country, around the world. We're also going to take more questions from the audience, uh, our global audience, as the CNN Facebook town hall continues.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: Back. Coming up on the top of the hour, this is CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. I'm Anderson Cooper, along with CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta.
2: Remember, uh, you can send your questions to us. Go to CNN's Facebook page, and uh, you can leave a comment there on the top of the page. You can also go to CNN's Instagram page, want to hear from you, do it in the story. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about all aspects of the story tonight, and we're looking uh, to our CNN correspondents who are joining us from all over the world.
1: Yeah, and some of the top experts in, in the field all around the world. It's a world increasingly isolated, especially after last night's presidential announcement of a travel ban affecting many European countries, though not the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Just for perspective, they've seen plenty of cases from 13 two weeks ago to 89 last week to at least 460 today. No deaths the prior two weeks, thankfully, six this week crisis clearly growing there, as is the travel ban confusion, seeing as Richard Quest is joining us from Heathrow Airport for us tonight uh, outside London. Uh, So Richard, the the U.S. moving forward with these travel restrictions starting tomorrow at midnight. So it's very confusing. What more are you able to tell us? What, What actually does this mean?
8: So let's break it down into who's affected and who's not. Uh, first of all, the countries affected. It's the Schengen countries. These are the European Union and Norway, etc., and Switzerland countries that share an open border between each other, but not the United Kingdom and not Ireland, which are non-Schengen countries. In terms of passengers who are affected, well, U.S. citizens will still be able to return to the United States from the Schengen area, uh, as indeed will green card holders, spouses of them, etc., etc. There's a complicated list thereafter it gets very difficult for foreigners for non-us citizens or green card holders to fly from the rest of europe if you like to the united states and that's why we've seen over the last 12 hours or so many u.s airlines dramatically, dramatically cutting flights from the rest of Europe. United, Lufthansa have been cutting flights. Delta, American, all of them, because there's simply not going to be the demand. And Anderson, the corollary to that is that those flights over the next few days uh, that are available are just jam-packed. And one finer thought, flying from London to the United States Next week or thereafter, the price has rocketed because this is the best way back to the States, except, of course, if you've been in the rest of Europe. But so
1: let me just be clear. If you're a British citizen or if you live in France or you live in Germany and you fly to London, can you fly to the United States and get in?
8: No well, no they that, 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 no you can 't you cannot use London as a back door because the re- the promulgation of the regulation says, if you have been in the Schengen countries. So somebody who thinks a nifty little wheeze, I'll get the Eurostar (laughs) from Paris to London, and I'll hip on a a plane back to the States, is going to be met Mm. at the other side. Well, first of all, they will be screened here. Have you been? Now, we don't know exactly what information sharing there is. But you will risk making an error, making, uh, telling a false statement to immigration. And as you know, that has serious consequences and ramifications. One final point, or one other point is, from the rest of Europe, those aircraft will be going to special designated airports that have been handling, for example, China. They're all the usual suspects. Kennedy, New York, Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. So there won't be the same capacity across the Atlantic. I want to put this in perspective, by the way. IATA, which is the aviation and airline organization, IATA says that there's 200,000 flights between Schengen and the US every year. It's $46 billion worth, uh, sorry, $26 billion worth of business that's now very seriously in trouble. Mm. Hey, uh, Richard,
2: it's, it's Sanjay, just, uh, you may have said this, but I just want to be clear, so US citizens who are currently in uh, the UK, uh, in Europe rather, who are flying back to the states, they're allowed to come back, but what is the process like? W- will there be
8: a mandatory quarantine for them, or what happens? that is unclear very unclear uh, so the non-us don't even get on the plane right okay they are barred the u.s will go to these special cele- these special airports and will follow sanjay the same procedures as was introduced by if, uh, for china italy and others but it is unclear at least from my understanding of, of, of the rules at the moment, exactly whether they are required to go immediately into self-isolation or whether there is going to be some other form of isolation or whether it's a sort of a hodgepodge, have you got symptoms? Uh, so U.S. return, U.S., and by that I mean uh, uh, green card holders uh, and spouses and and, and the like, the, as for everybody else, it's a no-go from Europe, and if you do fly, it's the one that's specialized. It's a mess. There's no getting over it. I mean, we're talking about uh, millions of people that would normally make this trip. We're talking about the, co- the two continents being completely uh, cut off to some extent yeah. by sheer confusion, and European governments are seething Absolutely blisteringly seething. That first of all, they say the situation doesn't merit it, and secondly, they weren't even consulted. Blindsided. And,
1: and uh, as you said, those flights that are continuing to the United States are going to be jam packed. So, anybody who may, you know, the last thing you want is to be squeezed no. in coach next to three other people uh, at a time like this. <laughs>
8: There's no, look, there's no question, that if you look, look, it comes in tonight, and you've got 12 hours, 24 hours, whatever, the, the planes start flying here, in, it's, it's, it's three o'clock in the morning here, the planes start flying in about three hours, same in, in Europe, and uh, on the continent as we say. They will be packed as of midnight on Friday, the curtain comes down. The number of flights will be cut, and if you really want to see the economic damage, Norwegian, which is a low-cost carrier you'll be well familiar with in the United States as well, is slashing 40% of its routes and says it will lay off or could lay off up to 50 percent of its staff. So uh-huh. the airline industry is on its knees as a result of all of this. Wow. Amazing.
1: Um, I'm still trying to figure out what a nifty little wheeze is, <laughs> but uh, that's for another time, Richard. Uh, Richard Quest, Thank you very much. Next town hall. We'll have a whole town hall about Richard's expressions. <laughs> now, South Korea, where we've seen massive testing in the face of the outbreak and what could be a measure of success in flattening the curve. But it's been a difficult several weeks, to say the least. More than 1,700 cases, 13 deaths two weeks ago. week ago, that rose to 5,700 cases, 35 deaths. This week, nearly 7,900 cases, 66 people died. Joining us now from uh, Seoul, CNN's Paula Hancocks. Uh Paula, uh, South Korea has been dealing with one of the largest outbreaks so far. What, what measures are in place right now? What is daily life like for people?
4: Well, Anderson, testing really has been key here in South Korea. Since this started, there's been almost a quarter of a million people in this country that have been tested, and, and that's far more than the most other countries around the world. And what they are starting to see is that over the last week, the number of new cases every day has been decreasing. They still have new cases, but it does appear, uh, at least at this point, to be some kind of a, a slowdown. I spoke to the health minister uh, earlier this week, and he said that he was hoping that we have seen the peak. And I also asked him because South Korea has been dealing with this uh, for months now. What was the advice to give to the US, to give to, to Europe, to those countries who are now starting to have to grapple with this? And he said, testing, early detection is absolutely vital when it comes to, to trying to, to stem the spread of this virus, to, to trying to, uh, to to calm down some regional out- outbreaks and clusters, which uh, South Korea has had an issue with. And he said also it's important to try and allocate the medical resources correctly. Uh, not everybody needs hospitalization. In fact, in South Korea, only 10 percent of those who tested positive actually stayed in hospital at all. So he said that that was key as well. But he kept coming back to the fact that you need that early detection and you need more testing. I think
2: South Korea, Paula, has been sort of held up as a model as far as testing goes. But, but I'm curious, what have been some of the other challenges uh, to the response?
4: Well, certainly, one of the issues that that South Korea has is is the clusters that have come really seemingly from nowhere. In the southeast of the country, uh, there was uh, a massive cluster uh, linked to one particular religious group, close to 60 percent of cases at one point were linked directly to that one religious group, and officials have have questioned that religious group, have said they've hampered uh, the effort, the fact that they have been secretive, they weren't giving the list of their members openly and quickly. Uh, and, And so that's really been one of the main issues. We've just had a cluster in the past few days here in the capital as well of Seoul, uh, where there's been more than 100 people in a call center that have tested positive. But what officials have done is they have shut down the building, they've quarantined everyone and they're testing everyone within the building uh, to try and uh, to, to stem that and doing the contact testing. But what it does show is that no matter how efficient the health system in a country, no matter how quick the government is to react, it is key that that citizens are, are honest and cooperating. Otherwise, all the best intentions of a health system can be undermined, as they were here in South Korea.
1: Yeah, Paul Hancock's in Seoul. Thanks very much. Just looking at some of the questions on our uh, Facebook uh, wall. A lot of people leaving messages. Hunter Lee asked, uh, since we don't have enough testing, how do we know how many people actually have the virus in America? The answer is we don't.
2: Uh, we don't. And, and, and the projections could be it could be five to 10, you know, 15, 20 times higher. We, we just don't know yeah. that.
1: Um, joining us right now from Geneva, Switzerland, Dr. Maria van uh, Kerkhove. She's the World Health Organization's technical lead for coronavirus response. Doctor, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Just globally speaking, where do things stand in your view on containing this virus? It seems like numbers coming out of China seem to have uh, stabilized. Is that do you believe that's true? What are you seeing globally?
9: So thanks for having me again. Yes, um, so what we're seeing globally is, um, in general, we're seeing a decrease in cases um, across Asia. Um, And that's led by a a decrease in China, as you've seen. Um, The reason we believe that that is real is because there is a lot of testing that's happening in China, not only among cases and contacts, but also looking in their respiratory disease surveillance systems. Um, And so it's declining in uh, Wuhan, um, in the epicenter of this outbreak, in Hubei itself. And I think yesterday there were only 26 cases reported in China overall. But we're also seeing a decrease in Korea, as you just heard from your correspondent, Um, and we've seen decreases in Singapore. Um, The worrying trend now are increases in in Europe. Uh, We are seeing large increases in a number of countries across Europe, Um, and and that is definitely a worry. But but as you know, the more you test, the more you're going to find. So it is very important uh, that testing uh, continues um, and that all cases and contacts are tested.
2: Yeah, doctor, there's, it's it's a new world, I think, for a lot of people understanding how best to sort of slow the spread of this virus. And there's something your organization has said is that all countries must strike this balance between protecting health, minimizing economic and social disruption, and respecting human rights. So what work do you think still needs to be done to really strike that balance?
9: So th- thanks for that question. We We feel very strongly that what has been demonstrated in a number of countries of reducing transmission can be done elsewhere. Um, and, and what that means is ensuring that aggressive, there's an aggressive and a comprehensive approach by all people, by governments that really attempt to find all cases, find all contacts, care for them. Uh, making sure that they get the right standard of care either in hospital um, and and as you know, not everybody will require hospitalization. Um, Some people will develop severe disease and it's important that they get the right care. But then making sure that contacts are isolated, are in quarantine, so that we remove them from other people so that they don't pass that onwards. But if you do that, you have to make sure that they're cared for as well. That they have the right information, that they they have uh, food, that they have medical care, that they can still reach their loved ones. So there is a balance between separating people, you know, making sure that we don't pass the virus between people, but also making them feel connected with their loved ones.
1: It, it's interesting. You've been obviously monitoring this longer than a lot of folks in the United States have. It's been on the World Health Organization's radar, obviously, since what's happened in, in China. Um, what you know, best case practice, you know what works to contain this. What is the U.S. not doing that we should be doing, whether it's communities, leaders whatever the case may be uh we heard from our correspondent in in china who was saying that folks in wuhan see in the us americans in new york still going to gyms and can't believe that people are still doing that Uh, what should the us be doing that we're not doing right now or that we need to ramp up more
9: well what i can tell you is what we know works Um, and what we know works is finding cases finding contacts We know that social distancing works, making, keeping people separated from one another. We know that if you're sick, if you're feeling unwell, you stay home. Uh, That's really key. Um, we know that um, restricting your own movement. We know that, you know, if, if you can work from home, work from home. Um, we have seen in several countries where they have shut down gyms, they have shut down social gatherings, um, and, and that does work. But it's important for, for everyone to know that it is going to be difficult for some time, that, these, that there are measures that need to be put in place. But these measures are temporary. You know, all of these measures that are put in place may seem aggressive, may seem over the top, but we know that if you can separate people then you you restrict the the possibility of this virus from passing from one person to another. We know that activating your emergency response and activating your emergency mechanisms, making sure that governments, not only from the health side, but that you're working with the finance side, you're working with the travel and tourism industry, you're working with businesses. This is an all societal approach. Mm. This is an all uh, government approach. And the last thing that we know works is mobilizing your public. So making sure that every single person knows what their responsibility is, making sure every single person knows that, that the signs and symptoms are fever and dry cough. It's not a runny nose. You know, there are things that people need to know. What is my individual risk? Right. What are the things that I need to do to protect myself and my family? And if you have that, then you have an entire population that can fight this virus.
2: Uh, Doctor, we just got a pretty clear description of what this travel ban looks like now from Europe to the United States. Is that is that going to work? Is that an effective strategy? Do you think?
9: Well, I, I've just heard about this uh, yesterday, um, and we know that there are many countries that are putting in in, in travel bans. Um, what we know, this virus is circulating. You know, this virus has is is has been identified in, in all continents, um, and so having what we know will work is not necessarily stopping flights um, because this virus has already has already circulated. What we know works is testing. We know that you have to be aggressive in finding your cases in your context, wherever they may be. Um, and so increasing, making sure that your testing capacity has increased, right. making sure that the people that do need to be tested are, that's that's what works. The other thing that's going to work and it's going to help people and save lives are readying your hospitals. So... If hospitals are not ready, they're going to be very quickly overwhelmed. Um, and it's important that hospitals have the right supplies, um, that healthcare workers are trained in infection prevention and control measures, they're trained in what they can do to help patients who come in, um, making sure that you have enough of a workforce. So that people aren't working too long hours, that they healthcare workers themselves get a break. These are the types of things that that governments, countries, all countries should be doing. Ready your healthcare system. Get your supplies ready. Increase your testing. Train your healthcare workers. Uh, we've
1: got a lot of questions from from viewers all over the globe. This is a video from uh, Joseph Cook in Sacramento, California, who has a question. Joseph, our paper, research paper, is recently published by Chinese researchers. Uh, that indicated that there are two types of the coronavirus, a type L and a type S, with the S type being the ancestral strain that is uh, much less aggressive than the L type of uh, coronavirus. I was wondering, what are the implications of that? Doctor?
9: So, yes. So there's um, a large number of virologists all over the world that are looking at these viruses that are identified in different countries. So very early on, we know that there are different groupings of these viruses. And and, and that was just mentioned in the question. Um, There's no indication that there are differences in terms of virulence based on those different groupings. Um, This is a this is a virus and there are normal changes that happen in a virus over time. But this virus is relatively stable. So so far, there's no differences in the grouping. As it relates to severity,
1: Uh, we got a question from Edward in England. He writes How many people worldwide have actually recovered from the coronavirus?
9: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know that I don't have the exact answer on that. I do know in China that it's more than 60,000 people who have recovered. Um, It's probably even higher than that. I think that number was from a few days ago. Um, But that's a good point. Um, So everyone that that is infected with this virus, not not everyone that's infected with this virus will have a severe disease. What we understand from the data coming from China um, is that about 80 percent of people overall will have a, a mild form of this disease. They'll feel unwell. Um, for some time, for a week or two, Um, but about 20% of people that get infected will require some advanced care in hospital. They'll need some respiratory support, and then a small proportion of people will die. Um, But so far, we're trying to keep track of the numbers of all of the recoveries globally because this is a very important number. Um, We need to follow people uh, through the course of their disease um, and follow them after they recover to make sure that they're still doing well. But at least 60,000 people have, have recovered.
2: You know, one of the things I think is worth drilling down on a little bit, 80% we hear will have sort of mild disease, doctor. But, you know, when I read these studies out of China, I just want to be clear on what mild disease means. Because when I read the studies, it looked like people within that 80% still could have pneumonia, still could have lung scarring, you know, significant things.
9: Yes, you're right. It's not, it's not just you know a, a few days at home feeling unwell. About 40% of people um, will, will have a, a relatively mild disease, and, and we mean that in the sense where they, they will feel unwell, they'll have a fever, they'll have some respiratory symptoms, they'll have some aches and pains, maybe headache. Um, and, but then there are another 40% that will develop pneumonia yeah. um, or a mild form of pneumonia, and I know that doesn't sound very mild, but will not require oxygen, will not require respiratory support.
1: Um, This is a video question uh, sent uh, via Facebook from Carol. Let's take a look.
13: I've had cancer, and I'm wondering if there's anything specifically that cancer patients should be watching for, and um, if we should check with our doctors earlier what kind of symptoms to look for.
1: Doctor, and I don't know if you could see Carol, but she's 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 uh, uh, I, I don't know what her age is, but I would say elderly, elderly, elderly late sixties, early seventies, perhaps. And she said she had cancer.
9: Okay, so yeah, so we do know that there are individuals who are more at risk for severe disease and death, and these are individuals who have underlying conditions such as cancer, uh, such as cardiovascular disease chronic respiratory disease, diabetes. Um, And so these are individuals, because of their underlying conditions, may be more likely or are more likely to develop a, a severe illness and die. So it is important that people that do have those underlying conditions do talk to their doctors, um, especially if they're older, if they're above the age of 60, 70, 80 years old. Speak to your doctor. Um, talk to them about you know what it, what your individual risk may be, um, and make sure that you take the right approach. You know, in terms of if you are developing symptoms, call them early. Don't hesitate to call your doctor and and get questions. One of the things. We want people to know is to be informed, uh, making sure that they know themselves what to look out for. So looking out for um, fever, uh, respiratory disease, um, call your doctor. Uh, If you have shortness of breath, if you have difficulty breathing, make sure you call your doctor right away and, and call ahead before you go in to see them. But if you have shortness of breath, it's important to go in and see a doctor right away.
2: OK, go ahead. Doctor, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, a lot of what we base uh, our knowledge of, of this novel coronavirus is data that's coming out of China. Some of these large studies out of China. And, I, and I'm just curious, um, you know, in the past, obviously, there's been situations where there's been concerns about transparency going back to even the SARS epidemic 17, 18 years ago. What is the World Health Organization sort of how do they evaluate this data coming out of China? Is there cause for concern or, or lack of transparency?
9: So we are looking for evidence and data on the coronavirus from every country that is dealing with this virus. Um, We are working with all of our member states to make sure that the data that that is captured by the country is shared with us and not only shared with us, but shared with the global community. Um, We were very hard on on China in the beginning, as with all countries, because with a novel virus, it means we don't know much about it. And so anything that we can learn about this virus um, needs to be shared, uh, not only amongst Chinese citizens, but to the to the rest of the world so that we can build the best uh, approach in terms of uh, uh, battling this this virus. Um, and so there's a lot of information that has come out of there. Um, you've seen papers that have come out of there. Um, I spent two weeks uh, in China uh, with a, with a mission, a WHO uh, China joint mission, where we worked with Chinese scientists to see what information was there and how that information could be used. We published a report that's online, which has been shared with the world. But now we're working also with an number of other countries, the data coming out of Korea, there are some papers that have come out of Korea recently. Um, there's papers and reports that are coming out of Italy. Um, and we want to see all of this, all of these analyses um, be Put forward so that we can see, is, are there differences happening in different countries in terms of the way the virus is behaving? We don't believe so, but we need evidence to be able mm. to show that. So we are an evidence-based organization, and it's important that all of this evidence is, is shared so that we have the best approach to tackle this virus. Um,
1: I just saw on our Facebook wall a question that came in from a woman in Misty, O'Brien, who says, is this like one and done? If you get infected and you get over it, can you then get reinfected, or is it like having the flu in a season... Uh, you know, you're you're done for this season.
9: So that's a good question too. So the the, the answer is we don't know yet. Um, What we are looking at and what scientists are looking at is to see an immune response amongst individuals who are infected with this virus. Um, We don't have uh, robust data on this yet. Um, What could happen is that when someone gets infected that they develop an immune and antibody response um, and that that could provide some protection going forward. Um, We don't have data to be able to say whether this is possible or not. Mm. Um, But these studies are ongoing now across a number of countries. So we'll have to get back to you on that when we have some data. All
1: right, Dr. Van Kerkhove, thank you so much. Uh, really uh, great information. I really appreciate it. It's so important to get factual information right now. Thank you, um, Dr. Kerkhove from the World Health Organization. Coming up next, we're going to check in with a coronavirus patient who we spoke to last week, see how he is doing. He's been in quarantine as our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall continues.
0: After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
1: Back with Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Dr. Lena Wen. We're going to take more of your questions coming up. But first, an update on someone we spoke with last week on this town hall. His name is Carl Goldman. He joins us once again tonight. Carl, um, at this point, how long have you now been in quarantine and how are you feeling? You look much better, I got to say.
12: Thank you. I feel a lot better. I have been in quarantine, actually counting the Diamond Princess since February 4th. And then I arrived here on February 17th, here being Omaha, first put in the biocontainment center and uh, in that room for 10 days. And now I've been here waiting for my body to shed itself of the virus in a uh, lower level of care. It's a, uh, I'm still locked up, can't go outside, can't open a window, but uh, here I sit one day at a time. You no, know, as the, I, if I could be anywhere, in, in the entire world, it's being here in Omaha and the doctors have just been unbelievable, the full medical team here. This is one of the uh, top facilities in the entire country. They're doing some clinical studies on me as well. Everything's very high tech, but I laugh because my doctor now opens the door. I've been writing a blog on our radio station's website, hometownstation.com, writing that the Grim Reaper approaches each time I take a test and come out positive. So now he announces himself as a Grim Reaper, and in this high-tech place, he is handing me a Post-It note with my results. So that's what's happening here in Omaha. Unfortunately, I'm positive once again.
1: You were retested today, is that right?
12: Correct, I was retested today, still came out positive. So it's been a long time, far, far more than the 14 days. In fact, it's coming up now on about 28 days since I first contact it. first came down with the virus they are and I'm not the only one there's a bunch of us from the diamond princess here and also at Travis Air Force Base and Lack, Lackland Air Force Base that are still in the same boat I'm in one of the theories may be that we have dead cells in there from the virus and still testing positive so the CDC is going to take a um, sample of ours in the next day or two take it back to Atlanta and put it and grow it in a culture as a different type of test to see how it compares to the tests we've been getting here.
2: I, I, I gotta say you're so gracious about your time in the hospital. I, th- I don't think I've ever heard someone describe it like that, so good for you. But what, so you're sort of giving us an idea of the protocol here. I think Dr. Fauci said you had to have two negative tests ultimately. I mean. D- is that is that the case for you? And I mean, are you actually here in
12: Omaha? They are requiring three negative tests in a row. Oh, so. They're being a lot more conservative than, than some of the other places in the country. And the tests are done with a swab that goes deep up each nostril for about five seconds, and then down the throat. Although they're finding the nostril one seems to be much more accurate, so they're heading toward just the nostrils for a while. My clinical study gives me the uh, addition, and that's not gonna help me at all. Hopefully it will give some answers. So I'm getting a lot of blood tests and then I get swabs under each eyelet for five seconds and then one up my rear end. So I'm taking one for the, for the team. <laughs>
1: um, Mr. Goldman, I really appreciate you talk, uh, talking to us. Uh, we wanna keep checking in with you. We, I hope you, uh, you get better and get all clear tests and you can come out. I know your wife is holding up the fort for you back at home. Um, thank you very much. We wish you the best. I want to also bring back in uh, sure. Dr. Wen. So oh, sorry wife
12: never picked up the virus. Well, yeah.
1: That's that. Uh, well, that's uh, that's know. a small blessing in, in all of this. Certainly a great blessing. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, back now with uh, with Dr. Wen. Uh, some more questions. We've got a video question sent in via Instagram from a viewer in New Delhi in India. Let's take a look.
14: My question for you is that I'm taking a direct flight from Delhi to New York City on Tuesday. Um, Is that a good idea? And also what can I expect when I land at JFK?
11: Really good questions. And I know that the CDC has come out with guidance saying that those who are older, who have chronic medical conditions should avoid these long haul flights. And I don't know with the questioner what other medical conditions you might have, but I think for everyone who's abroad, It's a question of what else is going on in their lives, as in if their whole families are here and if their Mm. medical care is in the U.S., even if they have these chronic medical Mm. conditions, they may still want to fly back and be with their families. It's also
1: for for travel stuff. It's not just the question of, um, you know, is this safe for me to fly? If by flying, am I endangering anybody else? It's also just logistically, might I get caught somewhere that suddenly goes into lockdown and then I can't get back to my home country or I can't get back to my, you know, to to the country I, I work in. So it's not just a, a health question, although that's obviously the most important thing. It's also a logistics question. You don't want to get caught someplace where you then can't get back.
11: That's right, and if you may need medications when you're abroad, if you may need medical care also, what -hmm. happens if you're somewhere else and you decide that you're gonna stay there for months, you may not be able to get back at that point. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really important point because even as we talk about these mass gatherings and things like that, I mean, obviously health is the the number one concern here, but if you end up at one of these mass gatherings, whatever it might be, a conference or something like that, and someone subsequently tests positive there, you might get wrapped up into now a, a significant contact tracing. If you had direct contact with that person, you may need to be quarantined with or isolated within your own home for a period of time. So all of that, you know, it's not just the medical, it's, it's the social part of this as well. By
1: the way, just on, I, you know, we saw the picture of the president next to uh, the, I think it was the chief of staff or Bolsonaro, the, the president of Brazil. Yep. And that man has now t- had tested positive for the coronavirus from from all the reporting. And the picture was taken in Mar-a-Lago. Is there, I mean, shouldn't the president be tested? I think the president should. I mean, be mean, if, if it wasn't the president, yeah. just if right. if this was a CEO of a company with somebody, an employee who they were meeting with, you would I would think in for contact sure. tracing so, they would be tested. So huh? clearly,
2: so it was the person who he met with did test positive. Is that what you said?
1: That's as yeah, that was as the as original far, thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, and in fact, Bolsonaro is now uh, you know being monitored. Right. Right.
11: Yeah. I mean, if in public health contact tracing yep. we would be tracing the contacts of each person that that, that they that they met and that mm-hmm. they had face to face contact with and so the president would be one of those individuals that would certainly be asked to monitor his symptoms and i would imagine to be tested too and he should be tested regardless of whether he's the president he should be tested because that's the yeah.
2: normal procedure so before when he met with the congressman who had been in contact with someone who tested positive that was different but now, because he came in direct contact with someone who tested, tested positive, positive, that changes the equation.
1: Um, I, I want to check in with that as Jason Carroll. The, the questioner in India, Delhi is asking about what happens at the airport when she arrives. What can she expect? It's a good question. And there's been conflicting reports about this. As Jason Carroll is at New York Kennedy Airport. Uh, Jason, what could she expect? Do we know?
15: Well, look, it really much depends on what your status is and where you're coming from. I mean, if look, if you're a U.S. citizen or you have a green card and it turns out that you visited one of these 26 European questions uh, countries uh, within the past 14 days, you will be allowed into the United States. But, look, if you're a foreign national and you visited one of these European countries in the past 14 days, then you will not be allowed into the United States full stop. Now, having said that... Tonight, Anderson, I've spoken to a number of travelers out here, U.S. citizens who were in Europe. And they said, look, that just simply was not made clear. Uh, Story after story from people who canceled tickets, bought new tickets to try to get here uh, ahead of that uh, Friday midnight deadline tomorrow. So a lot of confusion. One man simply put it this way. He said once he found out, U.S. citizen in Europe, he said he freaked out, got a ticket, and got here as soon as he could. So a lot of frustration. But as for that Indian viewer, uh, with, with that question, should be allowed into the United States. However, if that person has visited any of those 26 European countries within the past 14 days, she should seek other travel plans. Anderson?
1: Uh, we have an online submission from Mora in Washington state. Uh, Mora writes, Why hasn't the Life Care Center in Washington been evacuated, has the most deaths of anywhere in the U.S., yet people are still living and working there. Shouldn't the patients be repatriated to local hospitals where they can be properly treated and isolated? And shouldn't the staff be self-quarantined? It appears as if the government is just leaving these people to die.
2: <laughs> this is a tough question. And, and you know, obviously uh, these types of situations may come up uh, again because this is where these vulnerable populations live. But, you know, uh, and, and Dr. Wrenner and I were talking about this before, Unlike school closings where, you know, there is some place clear for the for the kids, the students to go, it's challenging with with extended care facilities. You've got to really understand what what is the the next plan? What do you how do you what do you decide?
1: So so there's the question of uh, medically is taking somebody to a hospital. Does that does that make sense the, the the risk of moving them? That's right.
2: The risk of moving them, the, the amount of resources that it takes at the hospital, can you provide that same sort of care? I understand that w- what has happened there, but can you disinfect, clean that area, reduce the risk, and still provide care there? Mm-hmm. My guess is that might be a, a you know a, a more desirable option if it's possible.
1: There are a lot of I mean in Italy they're already talking about making difficult decisions, doctors. Yeah. Um but I, I do want to check in with Sarah Seidner who's standing by at the life care center in kirkland washington uh sir, has there been any talk about that about why the the folks there many of whom haven't even been tested or at least as of yesterday that was the case uh why they're still there
16: Look, it's a great question, Anderson. We have asked the CDC, we've asked the state uh, health department, we've asked the local uh, health department as well, the county health department, and we asked a representative from the life care center here, the nursing home here, that now has 22 deaths associated with coronavirus that are linked to this facility. The life care center answered it this way. Number one, the reason is that this nursing facility uh, didn't evacuate and just move patients out and and, and get rid of the staff was there was no... one that was willing to take these patients in what had really become a petri dish uh, of the coronavirus here. Uh, The center said hospitals absolutely did not want these patients unless they had very acute and severe life-threatening symptoms because, of course, the hospitals didn't want to infect anyone else who was already sick in the hospital. Other nursing home facilities would not take these patients. Um, Families could not care for their medical needs. That's why they're here at the facility in the first place. And on top of that, uh, with some of the the patients testing positive for coronavirus, they didn't want to infect their families and their communities. Uh, There was nowhere else really for these patients to go. But I do want to mention this. One of the heartbreaking things here uh, for a lot of people is we are watching people walk up to these windows and talk to their parents through a window, Mm. unable to touch them, unable to comfort them with their touch. It's been really, really difficult for these families who have family members, moms, dads, grandparents Mm. inside of this facility is awesome. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Sir Seidner, I'm glad you're there. Thank you very much. Uh, and Dr. Wen, thank you so much for being with us uh, on this. Really appreciate it. It's, uh, great advice. Thank more you. questions answered by our experts, more on U.S. preparation efforts when the CNN Facebook Global Town Hall continues.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: To cover now in our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall, we've been partnering with Facebook on this. Getting a lot of questions uh, on uh, on Facebook, also on Instagram as well. One aspect of any crisis is how public officials communicate with the public, and in this crisis, we've already learned it can be vital. Uh, the president has said a lot of stuff that frankly isn't true. Thankfully, there's a coronavirus task force, which has been more fact based, and that's facts are critical. Joining us right now is Julia Kayam. Former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security. She's currently a senior national security analyst. In your world, what has been going on today?
13: So, today was a big day, and we had anticipated a day like uh, today, which is when containment no longer was viable. You just knew that you had, you know, sort of community contagion, so to speak. And governors and mayors, I think, sort of woke up to the reality or fear that. The demand would hit capacity relatively soon, so shut it down. That's what they did. They shut it down so that you could extend the runway, preserve um, health resources. When you say shut it down, that's meetings, the big meetings, things like that. everything.
1: But in New York, there's a move right now to try to pressure the mayor. There's some uh, advocacy groups who are right. trying to pressure the mayor to, you know, institute more social distancing in in yeah. public areas. You know, uh, I defer. Gyms, to, yeah. Things.
13: I mean, I defer to the doctors on this, but you you want to have a staged isolation or a social isolation uh, program, you don't want to go to quarantine immediately, first of all, because we don't have that many deaths. We, we, we need to pace this out, extend the runway... But we have to tell people honestly: if you, ex- you know, if you flatten the curve, you're extending the runway. You're so you're flattening the well- curve, people don't know that you, what I you mean. just don't want to hit capacity for for our health, um, uh, for our hospitals and health workers. You you want to make sure that if people get sick with this disease, they get sick over time. And the fear that I think a lot of governors and mayors were were worried about was that you just had massive. You're going to have a massive demand relatively soon. This gets back to the kits issue. Everything—it's go- the, it's the original the, the sin. The testing kits. Yeah, it's the original sin. I mean, it, it, because mm. if you're a governor or mayor or planner like me, I don't know what my number is, so I have to plan around a worst-case scenario. Because you don't have
1: testing kits. I don't know what my—I don't, den- don't, I don't know, know what my
13: denominator is. No. I don't know. Like I don't—you know—are ten people dying out of ten, or are ten people dying out of? Ten thousand. That's a very different number for a planner. So it goes back to that number. They don't have a a reliable number. And so they're getting to what seems to the American public very extreme measures very quickly because they have to plan. They have to plan for the worst, and then you sort of work for the best. And they have
2: to assume. I think that it's much higher than what than the thinking.
13: flu. I mean, no number yeah. I've seen is close to the flu. 0. 0.5 to three point five.
2: You know, I'm curious because you, you you were uh, there during Ebola. Yeah. As, as, as no, long- I was there
13: during H1N1. You were there during H1N1. Yeah.
2: H1N1. But, okay, that was 2009, yeah. Ebola, 2014. Yeah. How, how has this response been? I mean, you know, we see significant changes all of a sudden. It's not sort of, you know, incremental. Right. There's a shift all of a sudden. Yeah.
13: Was the same thing happening? No. In I mean, you had very localized individual fears with Ebola, certain just a certain handful of people. H1N1, you had a much more border state focused fear because it was coming from Mexico, essentially, so that once we got the vaccine, you could just essentially send it to the right state. So you didn't have this... I say nationwide social distancing. And I think that's what's nerve wracking for the governors and mayors that I talk to when they think about their plan B. So they're planning for the worst. Right. Often their plan B is, oh, if I'm Louisiana, I'll call Mississippi. You know, if I've had a hurricane, I'll ask Mississippi for their National Guard or their assets. When you have 50 states dealing with the potential that they they don't have any surge capacity. This is when, you know, sort of federal, um, you know, federal assets yeah. and, and gaming come in. Yeah. Right. That's what that's what we're thinking about. Yeah.
1: So I appreciate it. always good news. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> good uh, But information facts is good straight ahead. The uh, physical toll of coronavirus is one thing. But what about the mental health effects? We'll discuss when our CNN Facebook global town hall continues.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: Questions continue to come into our CNN Facebook, Global Town Hall. We spoke about this in particular before the break, and we're all now seeing the effects, the social distancing, big changes in our everyday lives and where we go, what we do, how we go about day-to-day life, uh, really. Right now, we want to look closer at the stress that can come with it. Joining us is Dr. Christine Moutier, a psychiatrist who we've, uh, we've often turned to in, uh, in difficult situations before. There's a lot of fear out there, and it's understandable. It's not something like you can just say, oh, there's no reason to, to not be concerned. To me, what's what's uh, empowering is that there are things we can do that can actually bring us closer together as a community while we are social distancing, which is looking out for one another and looking after our own health and washing our hands and being responsible.
14: Exactly right, Anderson. It's When we look at the data and actually past events, what we see is that during times of stress, even wartime or natural disasters, there is a tendency, we're social creatures, we come together, mm. and that can introduce an incredibly protective effect. Now, because this has this social distancing piece and the infectious disease contagion piece to it, I think we have to really think thoughtfully about, are we connecting with our loved ones? Are we checking in? Are we using technology if, if we need to? This is a time when we really can use that for good.
2: There's so many questions coming in on Facebook about this. And and to to sort of summarize them, I mean, there's something that's happening, obviously, with regard to this virus. And it's, you know, a potentially problematic virus for a significant percentage of the population. That is true. Yes. But how do you how do you convey that honesty while also trying to allay, you know, the, the anxiety that comes with it. I mean, yes. the, they're, they're opposing forces in some ways, it seems.
14: That's right. I think it's such um, a uh, sort of a challenge and an exercise in managing uncertainty because you look at it and you try to gauge, should I be incredibly concerned? Um, is this, is this life-threatening or is this simply a new and unfamiliar threat, which always will have an exaggerated sort of anxiety and stress response. We live with risk and health threats every day, and we have an incredible ability actually to cope with that, you know, to make rational choices about how we manage all of that and take care of our health. Um, I mean, the other thing that I think is really important about this, this issue of that tension of uncertainty and the anxiety that it creates is that remember that the brain is a part of our body. And so taking care of our stress, our mental health, our well-being, staying connected to ourselves and being centered um, and encouraging others to do the same and really connecting is actually a way to boost your immune system. The brain is connected to the body in that way. Yeah.
1: It's also, to me, what makes me feel better is, you know, we have been to places where that societies have fallen apart. I spent time in Sarajevo during the, the war in Bosnia, Rwanda and the genocide. This is not that. The, this is not the water is not going to shut down. The electricity is not going to go off. The grid is not going to go offline. People will die. People will get sick. The vast majority will will recover um, and, and it won't be a, a death, uh, you know, a, a, a deadly illness. Um, And we know how to treat this. It's just it's going to be unpleasant, uncomfortable, difficult. But it is not an alien life form coming from another planet that is going to destroy the universe. I mean, it's something that is manageable and doctors know how to deal with it. It's going to be tough, but we'll get through that.
14: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And having that grounded reminder in what it is and what it isn't. And, and reminding our, the youth in our lives about that as well. That's very important. Um, you know, I think that will help counter the sort of day-to-day changes that, of the impact that it is having. Mm-hmm. I think that disruption in routine um, and that sense of uncertainty the, is is just elevating anxiety and, you know, f- for people who have mental health conditions, it's all the more important to really go into a very proactive mode about managing mental health and well-being.
2: Yeah. One of the things I was saying today, we were saying social distancing does not have to mean social isolation. Mm. In fact, it can mean the opposite, you know, reach out more. I've been reaching out to my parents a lot, worried about them feeling that they're disconnected. So something, in, we in something all like do.
1: this, if people do come together, even if it's not a physical coming together, it's checking in with people and we are all in this together and there really is a community in that and that it can be a, a beautiful thing. Yeah.
14: That's exactly right. And I just want to say that when you check in with your loved one and you take the time to listen to what their concerns really are, what's on their mind, there is we we, we underestimate the power mm. that
2: yeah.
14: comes with that level of both. processing yeah. both for us and for the for our loved one. So it's it's absolutely a time to do that. Dr. Christine Moutier,
1: thank you so much. appreciate it. I want to thank all our guests and all those who've asked questions on Facebook, on Instagram, everyone at Facebook and Instagram for partnering with us. Thanks to everyone for watching the CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. We'll keep doing these. The news continues here on CNN. And
0: that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts.